the name of tonight's talk is the metta of awareness and the awareness of metta. The metta of awareness and the awareness of metta. And it's a continuation of our adventure, our exploration of awareness, and it is also a kind of bringing together some of the things that we've uh, covered to date, and also uh, highlighting this area of metta a little more than maybe we have done in terms of the evening talks. Guy very beautifully the other evening pointed out the uh, existence of emptiness and its, its inevitableness that there is this emptiness and its power. And from there he took us on a reflection that uh, some would term, as he mentioned, Buddha nature or Buddha mind. And he talked about the three characteristics that are associated with, with this, uh, this way of regarding it as Buddha nature, Buddha mind. One being the emptiness. And with that emptiness, I would point out the stillness that goes with the emptiness. And we'll see that that becomes uh, important in an understanding that can release the heart. And then secondly, this radiating quality of this Buddha nature, Buddha mind, that there is something that illuminates that, at least the way we're using it, and there's other ways it could be done, but the way we're using it in this retreat, that's this illuminating quality that's shedding the light, bringing the light, bringing the capacity of awareness uh, to experience. And then three, what he termed responsiveness. Responsiveness, this, there's some capacity that is created from this mind that, that in this plane of time and space we would know as responsiveness. We're only seeing it from this perspective. And then a couple of evenings ago I had uh, uh, taken us on this reflection about awareness as a refuge. And so this, we've looked at the awareness, we've looked at this, uh, that for the radiating quality, we've looked at the emptiness now and this evening we're looking at this responsiveness of, of this mind-heart uh, when it's not bound, when it's not caught in grasping. I'd like to start the exploration with uh, this uh, very kind of classic reflection that is done many, many times in Dharma centers everywhere, having to do with the fact that the Buddha referred to himself as Tathagata. And this is this word he created. It's not, a, it's not a word that existed. He made it up by combining two other words. And again, we'll see that this relates to our own experiences of the heart in many ways. So it, the, this word is a combination of the word Tatha, which means such or thus, such or thus, and it, then it's combined with one of two words, agata, which means come, or agata, which means gone. So the A in front uh, means the agata is come. With the, without the A in front, the gata is gone. So it's the, the, his name is either thus come, 
the one who has thus come or the one who has thus gone? Which does it mean? Which does it mean? And uh, for uh, our purposes this evening, I want to suggest that it means both. And that it was not just a play on words, as is often referred to, that he liked to play with words to get us to look more closely, but that it is literally the teaching. That where does one arrive? One arrives as one who has thus come and thus gone. To have, uh, to have, to look at these, the one who has thus come is utterly imminent, here and now, totally present, unbound, present in this moment. Wow. Unbound, fully present in this moment. No shackles. No shackles at all. And then thus gone is transcendent. Transcendent meaning in the sense of having experienced nibbana, having uprooted all the seeds of greed and aversion and delusion. So there's not even a chance of causing harm. Not even a chance. Totally transcended this space-time plane in terms of the uh, cause and effect that is so characterizes this plane. In that thus come, this is this word imminence, meaning this here and now. And in the transcendent, there is a uh, uh, this uh, Tibetan mantra of gate, gate, paragate, parashamgate, bodhisvaha, gone, gone, gone beyond, gone far beyond this uh, something that is not describable, unimaginable, that is outside the consideration from where we stand, can't be described in that way. And so, so both of those are there. Not contradictory at all. Why would it be? Why would the fact that one's gone beyond prevent one from being fully here too? Because one has stepped outside the conventional limitation of space-time and our regular ego-based mind. Ego-based perceptions may be a better word than mind in that sense. But we use that word commonly as mind. So, where we, if, in the way of thus come, we have come into the here and now, to the sacred nowness that a few years ago was so in as a, a word, this nowness, this sacred nowness that's not in any of the three times. And it's not, it's not in past, it's not in present, and it's not in future. And yet it is, it is in time, but not of time. So it's not of any of those times, but it's in this moment. But this moment isn't being defined by the timeness of it, but by this transcendent quality of it. That, that or, uh, or described by such eminence that it's, we're so present in this moment, that again, we're not caught and we're not shackled by this moment. 
that, that, that we're living from a kind of freedom of that the, the, we live from the intention, from the right understanding, live totally from the eightfold path in such a way, again, that we're not bound. This, to me, are, is, is the two uh, is, is the way to look at this in terms of these two possibilities that both of these are true. So when Guy was talking about the responsiveness of this awareness of this of this Buddha mind, that it uh, it has in it the loving kindness, the the compassion, the sympathetic joy, and the equanimity, all the the Brahma Viharas that would be present in total imminence, that a mind that's free. That is what is said that the mind of an arahant experiences, those four mind states, without all the other mind states that we experience. It's both mind-boggling and yet just slightly imaginable. <laughs> that not, not for me personally, <laughs> But I think of those I admire, and I go, maybe I could see that. I could. It's not. It's not uh, mysterious in a certain way. It is this combination of constantly letting go of the grasping in such a way that we're also constantly clarifying the intention, and the mindfulness is so strong that we live in the intention. What is the intention? The samasamkapa, loving kindness, not causing harm. And, being present and able to be able to do this. So it's, it's like an imaginable thing. Why do I say that? Because in our own practice, we're involved in both of those. There is a degree of transcendence that we're interested in. Some of us more than others where we are interested in this liberating moment, this nibbana, this, this uh, gone beyond, far beyond, that this is, the, this is the ultimate of the path, this is the final fruit of the path. There's these, in our tradition, there's these uh, four stages of it, beginning with a, a stream enterer and uh, going all the way to Arahant. Uh, and that's a, a worthy aspiration it has motivated the monastics and many lay people you know, for these, these 2,500, 2,600 years now. Very worthy go. At the same time, we've seen many people with that goal, people who, in fact, have had real experience, have real knowledge, and really have a commitment over there, and yet cause harm here and now. Uh, I joked with one person about uh, the person, uh, the person's had this great retreat and they feel so good and they come home and uh, kick the dog and or slap their children and, and are generally nasty. And in fact, that can happen to any of us. We can be so liberated sitting here in retreat and you get to the airport or you get stuck in traffic and who's commenting now? Who's saying those words about the other drivers? Who's saying all this about the airlines? Maybe deserved, but nonetheless. (laughs) 
Who is saying that? Who, who is that? Where did that come from? What happened to that understanding? It wasn't cultivated. It wasn't maintained. There was a loss of imminence. Not a forgetting of the aspiration and how good it felt to be on the path, but a, a, a loss of this, of this understanding to be able to emanate now. So from my view, each of us, again, in our own unique combinations of this, are involved in this movement of eminence and transcendence. Now, I've written about this on more than one occasion, uh, and I describe it as the eminence as like 360 throughout our lives. So are we causing suffering anywhere in our lives? That's the inquiry in terms of eminence. What is emanating? What can we bring forth? Our intention, what is our intention 360 in our life? Is it to not cause suffering anywhere in our lives? What that would look like, how you would interpret that, very much according to you as an individual. I'm simply holding the question, do you value the eminence part? If you do, then your practice on retreat and when you go home, your daily practice and then you're living your daily life would reflect this commitment, this intention, moment to moment, to emanate your deepest understanding and how you live everywhere, 360 in your life. At the same time, the, the, the experiences uh, that of a transcendent nature are inspiring to give you confidence to live that way, 360. And uh, they, they create a kind of um, continual interest that really makes uh, us uh, be alive uh, in, in our dedication to the path versus all the pullings of the world. And the world pulls us in so many ways. And m- most of us, certainly myself, I can be affected by that pulling. Most of us can. And to have something that balances. So we have these two orientations. The transcendence and the eminence. In that same way, if the emphasis of our practice is towards the transcendence as known through emptiness, the practice can be a little removed. A little removed. Others may not so easily feel the merit of our practice to them. Because there's a, there's a, there can be a dryness, there can be a, a sense of, of non-involvement. A non, uh, the responsiveness may be there, but it's very quiet responsiveness. Whereas if, as we are going towards our final goal, we have cultivated uh, this loving kindness. We have cultivated compassion. Uh, cultivating as meaning cultivating intention, not results. Cultivating intention as best we're able. Then there tends to be a growth of that as the, the, the maturation of the practice, that comes along too. It tends to be more balanced in that way. And those of you who've got more practice experience, you've run into teachers who've got a lot of one and not so much of the others and some uh, with both. I, was in, I met a number of Ajans over in Thailand 
uh, in February, and it was really pretty obvious that kind of mixture in each of them, and uh, just noteworthy in that way. So we come from that to this uh, question of our daily lives, and we're just beginning to see where the Brahma-viharas, let's call them metta for all this meaning, all the Brahma-viharas, and let's say that we can use love in the sense of agape love, this non-personal, this non-seeking advantage, this non-demanding result love that is there in a number of traditions, a number of religious traditions, that this this kind of uh, unconditioned metta would be part of what we're cultivating in terms of imminence. Still need wisdom, need the wisdom to live daily life. Otherwise, we won't, we won't see what the suffering is. We won't see where we're grasping and all. And I want to uh, take this down to a very kind of coarse, everyday level. And uh, through this poem, this that I, poem that I very much enjoy by a poet named Tony Hoagland. Some of you may know his work. And this poem is called Phone Call. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. <laughs> that might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. (laughs) What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people, one of them living deep inside of me, like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other, standing in another time zone, in a kitchen in Wyoming, with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window, where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. we can uh, lose ourselves a bit in conceptual thinking on retreat. But this is life. You know, for this, this poet, his father on the phone, this is life. And we each have a life like that. Some are more filled with people, some with less, some with more responsibilities, some less. Some have clear direction, others not so clear direction. But if we're going to have imminence, if we're going to have awakeness that is imminent in our lives, if there's going to be a responsiveness to our experience, then we have to choose to have that. This um, 
this awareness that we have cultivated, it helps bring the possibility of that awareness as we do our practice at home, as we go about our daily life. The thing that's uh, a little, got to try to wrap our minds around it, about this uh, awareness that we've pointed to, this, this larger awareness, this knowing that we know, this awareness that does not get involved in what is being known that is present and, no, and registers it, but doesn't get involved, doesn't, doesn't, this awareness that does not move, it's empty and it's still. And that stillness, you have to think about that. Although we've all had the experience of stillness. You've felt times in your life, not just here, maybe even as a child, when your mind was just so still. Stillness has a um, uneasy relationship with the flow of time. Because time is always moving. The events of our lives are always moving. And Nietzsche is the law. Things are always changing. And so then... Where does stillness fit in? And it goes back to this both imminent and transcendent quality of the mind when it's liberated, even for a brief moment. What is known is always moving. That which illuminates the knowing is itself not moving. It is not moving. In ordinary reality, we would uh, of, of our daily lives, we might notice this, like on the cushion, when uh, at the end of the inhale, there's a there's a still point. A couple of people on this retreat have asked about that. Or at the end of the exhale, there's a still point. It's neither in nor out. For some people in their meditation, that's very jarring, and they kind of lose their uh, concentration at that point. Others utilize that very same point and it is how they get concentrated. We all have our own relationships with that, but it's not, it's not something that's so shocking. What um, is more challenging is to understand that there, this awareness, this, this, this knowing, there is a sense of that stillness and yet there is still moving, that they are there together. It is not contradictory. It is paradoxical how we would know it. Thus come, thus gone. This is a little challenging. This isn't something you're supposed to understand tonight. You might have a very different take than I do. That would be fine. But to give yourself time to open to this as to how you deal with the constant flow of your life. How do you deal with that? If we're resting back in this awareness, there is all that movement of our lives, and yet there's a stillness. And resting back in that stillness of the awareness so empowers the imminence of our practice. That's what I'm suggesting. 
This is what T.S. Eliot says about the still point. It's so well known, but I still uh, find it worth teaching. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, there's that paradox again, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but do not, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity. The still point, do not call it fixity. Paradoxical thinking, let loose of the, of the attachment to the old coconut's way of binary thinking, <laughs> and open to this vast awareness where all things can be known and exist. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. And there is only the dance. Except for the still point, that illuminating awareness, that that, uh, radiating quality of the empty mind, this Buddha nature. Except for that, there would be no dance. There would be no reality. There would be no pleasant and unpleasant. There would be no movement. This is how it's known, whether that means there's nothing out there, or there's something out there, but we wouldn't know it. We're not interested in all of those, how many angels on the head of the pen. We're interested in our own immediate experience and how we respond to it. The dance is the dance of movement, the dance of, of back and forth, the, the dance of, of, of being drawn to and wanting not to have. So how to, how to dance better? To understand that there's a still point and resting in that still point. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. This is the time-space of our ordinary experience. If we always think in time-space, we've got our nose stuck to the window looking at the world. We're not resting back in awareness. We're missing this knowing of the dance, this resting in it. And it can happen to each of us because of all the stimulation of life. The positive stimulation, all the things we like and get excited and want, and the things we don't want and we're afraid of and we're mad because we have it, or uh, on and on and on. This is the most beautiful description of uh, freedom that, uh, that I just, I, I'm, I'm, every time I'm struck by it is these next lines. The inner freedom from the practical desire. That's what it is to rest back in this awareness, to be in the still point. Again, this Buddha mind. The inner freedom from practical desire and the outer compulsion. Freedom from the practical desire and from this outer compulsion all of our compulsive mind, the judging, comparing, fixing. The release, the inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, the release from movement 
Action is always movement. The release from action and suffering. Release from the inner and the outer compulsion. Yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light, still and moving. Eribon, that's like exhilaration, like this kind of ecstatic feeling. Eribon without motion, concentration without elimination. Concentration without elimination. The mind's collected and unified, but it's not having to close anything out. That's that one-pointed awareness that Sumedho teaches. This resting in awareness, taking refuge in awareness, there is a one-pointedness to it, but that one-pointedness includes everything. And there's a stillness and a movement, but there is a freedom. Some of you have had small taste of this, some a little more than small, in, in the course of, of our time together with this. Our caring, our ability to love, can be seen as prosaic. It can be seen as, uh, uh, I'll love you if, that that's all that love is capable of, that, that's, that it's just some sort of biological advantage kind of, uh, of uh, uh, helping the species survive uh, experience, or it can be seen as I see it, which has a transcendent quality that is also imminent. That the metta, the Brahma Vihara, the, this, this, these heavenly abodes are genuine states of a free mind. That they are not simply evolved from uh, this evolution of the biology but that they arise from something far uh, uh, larger than that, that, that the biology caught up with so that it could start to access it somewhat. You may have a different, a very different view than that, but that is my view. And yet, even if our compassion and our metta and our sympathetic joy has this, uh, uh, is, is part of this radiating quality in some way, that the responsiveness and the radiating, illuminating quality of this, uh, of this great awareness come together. In our lives, we are in space-time. We have to wash the dishes, you know, walk the dog. We, 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 we are, we're involved in movement. Most of our caring will be personalized and it will have a lot to do with how we perceive pleasant and unpleasant and how we want things to be. And so it becomes um, a challenge. It becomes incumbent on us to be able to occasionally drop into knowing the difference between this uh, stimulus response kind of feelings of love and its root capacity, which at least as I would view it as a root capacity in, in this emptiness of this awareness. Again, this is uh, the way T.S. Eliot puts it. Our regular caring being a kind of desire we desire to have what we think is pleasant and advantageous. We desire not to have what we see as unpleasant. 
Grasping is a response to desire. Grasping, this attachment, this clinging, is a, is a, 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 I shouldn't have said response, it is reactivity that comes from desire. So desire's got a lot of problems with it in that way. This is the second noble truth. It's very clearly stated in that. So Eliot says, desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Anyone not get that? Desire itself is movement. That means we're, 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 we, there's some degree of uh, movement towards or against that's, that, that's motivated by some sort of grasping in the untrained mind, the unfree mind, the mind that is not resting back but is identified, has taken birth in, has created this uh, uh, idealized uh, thing of getting rid of something or getting something and is all attached to it, grasping after it. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. That's one of the best news statements that I ever encountered in my entire life. Love itself is unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. This metta, this responsive quality of the free mind, it itself doesn't move. But there is, there's a responsiveness that manifests, from my view, in space-time. It responds in kindness. It responds in self-sacrifice. It responds in delight for another. It responds in a kind of equanimity where one can, in fact, bear the dukkha that's of the first noble truth out of love. Out of love. This isn't unique to a particular tradition in that way. It's referred to in many different ways in many spiritual traditions. But that this, the, what, the emptiness of, of our, our, our real awareness, that empty awareness that sometimes in, uh, to the people who have a superficial exposure to Buddhism goes, well, this is, there's, this is nihilism. There's, you, know, there's, you don't think anything matters. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. What, the matter is a matter without seeking advantage in our deepest understanding. Do we always act that way? Do we always have to act that way? No. We start where we are. We start where we are. But we have this intention of moving this way, of staying connected to this larger feeling of the Brahma Viharas. So that the emptiness is balanced by this commitment to the Brahma Viharas. I think it was Nisargadot that said, when I think I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I think I am everything, that is love. My life flows like a river between these two shores. We, we are pointing to both sides of this, not just to the emptiness, not just to the transcendent aspect, but to the eminence, this eminence of showing up here and now. And we would say that that eminence will uh, support the transcendent aspirations we have, just as I said earlier, the transcendent aspirations support the eminence. So it is a, a, a virtuous uh, cycle 
the, the cultivation of both of these. Ajahn Sumedho says that Nibbana prefers, uh, 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 refers to something that is beyond the power of words to describe. So this final liberation is referring to something that words cannot describe. He says that Ajahn Chah would use the words, the reality of non-grasping. The reality of non-grasping. Why would he use that? Because that's, that's something we can imagine. We can, we can apply that. We can apply in this moment, am I grasping or not? We can, uh, we're capable of, of making that discernment and possibly making, uh, making the movement to non-grasping. Possibly. In any given moment. Not out of moments, but possibly. The, the advantage of this, of this non-grasping, the reality of non-grasping, is it points to the fact that it's, it's the, the, what we're awakening to. What do you mean we want to wake up? We want to wake up to the fact that we're grasping, that we're being attached. And that's because that's letting loose of the, the attachment that comes from the greed and the hatred and the delusion is the path. We use the mindfulness and da-da-da-da to help with that. So we're waking up to that. We're not waking up to nibbana. That's, that, it doesn't work that way. That's a, that's a concept to us. But in this moment, I can feel I'm either grasping or not grasping. And as we look at it, we can also see that the more we are resting in this awareness and the more we, are, we have access to the, to the mind states of the Brahma Viharas, it really helps with the grasping. It's just, we don't, we're not so desperate. We don't, uh, our, our needs aren't so strong in that way. There is a sense of, of going to the non-suffering from that. So modest and yet so big. Sumedho goes on and says, you have to go beyond language and perception. And the only way to go beyond thinking and emotional habit is through awareness of them. Thus this uh, being aware of, not just that we're anger, but being angry of the emotion, that we know emotion, emotions like this, we know we know this emotion. There is a presence. The mindfulness has a presence to it that that. Uh, is is got a wisdom in it that presence that's the sati sampajana that uh, Ajahn Sumedho is referring to. We see, oh, this anger is causing suffering. We can know we're angry and feel very self-justified, right? Very self-justified. We can even be getting off on the anger if if you're prone to that anger because of the rush of anger. Likewise, the the very process of wanting can be self-perpetuating because there is a kind of chemical release in the wanting that, that uh, in, uh, it, it innovates us, it gets us energized. And so the wanting itself can lead to, to more wanting because that's, that feels kind of good because we, we got energy towards something just because of wanting. And so if we're not aware of these emotions, these mind states, the, the, way, we're, uh, the way we're thinking, if we don't bring this awareness then we're much more likely to be pulled into it. We're, 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 we're lacking this, this uh, resting back and then knowing. 
that's possible. We can um, uh, get so up in the coconut, the old coconut, that all that we've talked about this week becomes a concept. And this is not a concept teaching. It's not like, it's, uh, the, this awareness is not like um, a tree or an automobile or, or your computer or a microscope. It, it's, it's, um, it, uh, it, it's a kind of uh, verb noun. It's like knowing. Uh, 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 the Venerable Semedo talks about knowing so often because it is this, it's this sense of immediate knowing. We're knowing how it is. We're knowing right now how it is. Like you can take a moment right now and just know how it is for you. As we develop the new habit of knowing how it is for us, we utilize it more and more. So in all these different situations, it's like we've got this uh, companion with us. That's awareness. So we're, we're living out the soap opera of our lives, you know, the, the sometimes uh, genuine large dramas and the oftentimes rather small dramas that we treat as such large dramas. And there we are, we're being our regular old selves, not having to change, but we've got this companion, this knowing, the knowing. We've invited it, we respect it, we cultivate it, we practice it, we uh, honor it, and it, it knows it's welcome. There's a, there's a, it just starts to be part of us. This knowing is not um, abstract and or not removed from the caring. It's not removed from the Brahma-viharas. Why do we want this knowing? Why is it so valuable? Because we will, in fact, have more metta for others and ourselves. We will have more compassion for others and ourselves. We will have more ability to accept the joy of others and find genuine happiness within us for the joy of others. And be able to experience our own joy in a more authentic way, not feel guilty or ashamed or get inflated by it or do all of these secondary reactivities of mind, which we can do around our own happiness. Most people, at least in some areas of their lives, have a lot of baggage that comes with the happy moments. That's just been my observation over all of these years and so many people. So we, there's, there's, a, there's a, a gain of well-being that is showing up in our lives right now. If we were to stop in our lives and we just sit there in the awareness and we go through that very careful examination the way Guy took us through the other night, what we would really discover is that every space-time moment of well-being really 
lies in this innate capacity for well-being. That is my view. That is my experience. And that the, the, the uh, manifestations in daily life of, of the Brahma Viharas are, are, are manifestations uh, reflecting, uh, uh, coming from, and, uh, empowered by this, this innate capacity that's there along with the emptiness. You may not feel that way now. As you practice more, you may become very convinced, no, that's just not true at all. I can only report from my practice in this way. If there is a possibility that in a general way, what I'm pointing to this evening for all of us, it has some degree of truth in this general way, it's some degree of accuracy, the implications are quite large. It suggests that if we cultivate a spacious awareness, stay in the stillness, feel this, uh, this responsive quality, this empty quality, this illuminating quality of the awareness, it can make a practical and genuine, real difference, not just in a given moment, but can put us on a little bit of a different trajectory in our lives whether we're 25 or 85, that there is this possibility that what we, what we perceive, what we think all this is, gets a little shifted, and then a little more shifted as that little shift manifests through time. So, um, well worth doing. On the other hand, for you, it may be seeing the emptiness is what brings you freedom. Just so you know, this is empty, this is empty. It's empty, it has no lasting. It's empty of any lasting qualities. It's empty of any self-qualities. So I just let it go. And maybe that's worked stronger for you. That's terrific as well. It's, it, again, it's not an either or. It's finding that combination that works best for us. At various times in our life, the, the seeing the emptiness of the awareness might be better, and other times more the fullness, that is the fullness of this, this, this uh, responsiveness, this radiating quality of it. Here's a poem by Rumi that captures some of this. It's titled, What's Not Here? I start out on this road. Call it love or emptiness. I only know what's not here. Resentment. Sorry. Not I only know what's not here. Resentment seeds. Back-scratching greed. Worrying about outcome. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Whether you call it emptiness or call it love. I start out on this road. Call it love or emptiness. I only know what's not here. Resentment seeds, back-scratching greed, worrying about outcome, fear of people. When a bird gets free, it doesn't go back for remnants left on the bottom of the cage. Close by, I'm rain. Far off, a cloud of fire. I seem restless, but I'm deeply at ease. Branches tremble. The roots are still. I am a universe in a handful of dirt, whole when totally demolished. Talk about choices does not apply to me, while intelligence considers options 
I am somewhere lost in the wind. I'm somewhere lost in the wind. There is a freedom in this resting back and this awareness, this, uh, this feeling of non-gain, uh, non-seeking advantage, this awareness that would just knows it's not, it's not involved in the outcome of the knowing. It's just willing to know. I, I fully understand uh, how frustrating or uh, challenging or confusion that can come around that. But it's so worth knowing. Going back to the mundane once again, as compared to the way Rumi was talking about it as love or emptiness. This is a poem, again by Tony Hoagland, called What Narcissism Means to Me. There's socialism and communism capitalism, said Neil, and there's feminism and hedonism, and there's Catholicism and bipedalism and consumerism. But I think narcissism is the system that means the most to me. (laughs) And Sylvia said that in Neil's case, narcissism represents a heroic achievement in positive thinking. And Anne, who calls everybody sweetie pie, whether she cares for them or not, Anne lit a cigarette and said, only miserable people will tell you that love has to be deserved. And when I heard that, a distant chime went off for me, remembering a time when I believed that I could simply live without it. Neil had grilled the corn and sliced the onions into thick white discs and piled the wet green pickles up in a stack like coins. And his chef cap was leaning sideways like a mushroom cloud. Then Ethan said that in his opinion, if you're going to mess around with self-love, you shouldn't rush into a relationship. And Sylvia was weeping softly now, looking down into her wine cooler and potato chips. And then the hamburgers were done, just as the sun set in the background started cutting through the charcoal clouds, exposing their insides, black, streaked, dark red, like a slab of scorched, rare steak, delicious but unhealthy, or, depending upon your perspective, unhealthy, but delicious, the way that deep inside the misery of daily life, love lies bleeding. Wake up, wake up, let go of that which causes us to let love lie bleeding. Why do we do this to ourselves? Is it not our misperception, our ignorance, our old habits of mind? So, what does it feel like, this letting go? This is uh, Yang Su. It's called Perfect Joy. Here's how I sum it up. Heaven does nothing. Its non-doing is its serenity. Earth does nothing. Its non-doing 
is its rest. From the union of these two non-doings, all actions proceed, all things are made. How vast, how invisible this coming to be. This is out of this emptiness, this emptiness, this awareness. All is known, all is formed. Here's how I sum it up. Earth does nothing. Its non-doing is its serenity. Sorry, I'm going to have to do that again. Here's how I sum it up. Heaven does nothing. Its non-doing is its serenity. Earth does nothing. Its non-doing is its rest. From the union of these two non-doings, all actions proceed. All things are made. How vast, how invisible this coming to be. All things come from nowhere. How vast, how invisible, no way to explain it. All beings in their perfection are born of non-doing. Hence, it is said, heaven and earth do nothing, yet there is nothing they do not do. Where is the man who can attain this non-doing? Where is the woman who can attain this non-doing? Non-doing. The non-doing is not a concept. It's not a kind of a Zen little koan or Zen packaging of something. It is, it is a non-grabbing hold, a, a non-refusing uh, uh, to be awake to what's true in this moment. Hard, hard, hard. Sometimes we come to this through the difficulty of our lives. This is a poem by Mark Nepo called The Lesson. When young, it was the first fall from love. It broke me open the way lightning splits a tree. Then years later, cancer broke me further. This time it broke me wider the way a flood carves the banks of a narrow stream. Then, having to leave a 20-year marriage, this broke me the way wind shatters glass. Then, in Africa, it was the anonymous face of a schoolboy beginning his life. This broke me yet again, but this was like hot water melting soap. Each time I tried to close what had been opened, It was a reflex, natural enough, but the lesson was, of course, the other way, in never closing again, in never closing again. Life can break us, or the very same events in life can break us open. Having some degree of taste, of access, of a hint of this larger awareness can really help in terms of that difference between being broken and being broken open. The innate quality is there to be broken open. Call it metta, call it the Brahma-viharas, call it agape, call it emptiness. Whatever one calls it, it is there to be felt. So what do we do with this? What do we do? How do we begin? What do we do tomorrow? What do we do on the way home? What do we do next week? Somato's sage advice. The practice of letting go is very effective 
for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words. Let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Madhyamakaya and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations, the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. Let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. And when he says this, he means it. He's a very accurate reporter. (laughs) And his practice is awesome. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attain than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> we have another attending for the for hearing the Dhamma tonight. Have anything to teach us? So let go. Let go, let go. Let go in terms of experiencing the emptiness, but also let go in terms of opening to the possibility of this, of this metta love. That in all of our smallness and all of our anxieties and all of our feeling as though we don't have enough, that we've not had enough of our turn, and on and on and on, and we have it so hard, or it's, we're at an age where it's all falling away from us now. In the midst of all of that, let go of those mind states as best we are able, such that we can open to this innate sense of well-being that the Brahma-Viharas represent. So we see it as empty, and that is wisdom, We see it as love. We see it as empty. That is wisdom. Empty, this wisdom. But then there is this, we are everything, that we're sufficient the way it is, that we're we're not separate. We're part of some huge unfolding. We're not separate. That it's all got a kind of perfection even though we're actively trying to make it better and should actively make it better. And yet it's got a kind of perfection in the very knowing of it. That it's, 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 uh, it makes any of the greatest pieces of art or music ever created seem like nothing. This very unfolding of this life as it is, when known from that love space, when known from that love space, Do we dare, do we dare let go, not just into the emptiness, but to let go in this kind of vulnerability of caring, as though we are sufficient, as though we have enough, as though we have something to give, and we are also worthy of receiving, just as we are. Do we dare, do we dare, do we dare let go in this way?
So let's sit for a moment, please. Feeling the impact, not just of this evening, not just this afternoon, not just this morning, but the impact of seven days of diligence and practice. Dropping attention to the belly area, into the intuitive body. What would the intuitive body have us know? What wants to be heard from the intuition? Shifting attention to the heart space. What needs attending in the heart? What do you know you know in the heart space? What needs to be allowed, received, let go, acknowledged in the heart space? Shifting attention to the head center where all of our comments are made, all of our views and opinion chatter away. But respecting the head center, what has the head center noticed that it would have you listen to? And then letting go of all this knowing. Just be, just for a few seconds, just trust yourself to let go of everything and just be. No doing, no knowing. 